0: Hey Big Biology listener, we're doing a fall fun drive. A gentle reminder that we're a nonprofit and we rely on donations to keep making the episodes you love.
1: We'd encourage you right now to make a donation. You can make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org or set up a recurring donation at our Patreon page, patreon.com/bigbiology. Thanks. <laughs> So, Art, suppose you wanted to find life elsewhere in the universe. What would you look for?
0: Hmm. Well, I guess I'd use the only example of life I'm familiar with. That's life on Earth as a basis for my search. I'd probably focus on planets or moons orbiting sun-like stars, and I'd expect to find life forms there based on carbon and water.
1: Great ideas! Probably because you're not Art. But who are you? And what have you done with
0: him? Well, Marty, I'm Cameron Gallenbor, new co-host of Big Biology, and I'm a professor at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology in Colorado State. I'm also your longtime friend and colleague, so this question is a bit weird. <laughs> but anyway, and don't worry, Art is fine. He was just preoccupied with research in South Africa when we interviewed today's guest.
1: Ah, okay, good. And now that we have that straight, back to my question, how to find life off-earth. So why those three conditions?
0: Well, the carbon part is partly due to its uber-abundance in the universe, uh, the fourth most common element. But it also has a very special molecular binding ability. Carbon and less so silicon can make stable or reactive bonds with other elements with very little energy. Water, too, has very important properties. But one of the most important is its ability to dissolve many types of things, especially carbon-based molecules. Carbon-based reactions are much easier to achieve with water than without it.
1: Okay, all well and good, but that just can't be it. For instance, we've known there's water on Mars for a while, and we've learned recently of water on the moon. My favorite example, in 2011, scientists found a water cloud inside of a quasar that's 140 trillion times bigger in volume than the total water on Earth. Surely even with all that water, there's no life inside that quasar.
0: Definitely not, and don't call me Shirley. That's where the sun-like star part comes in. Life won't just be anywhere, at least not lifelike on Earth. There are between 40 and 80 billion sun-like stars in the Milky Way. And conservatively, only about 1% will have planets of Earth's size in the not-too-hot, not-too-cold, or Goldilocks zone from the star.
1: Okay, great. Now we're getting somewhere. But that does leave us about a billion planets to consider just in our own galaxy and I don't see anyone funding a systematic search of all of them anytime soon.
0: No way, and more problematically, we know we need water and carbon, but those are crappy things to look for because they're going to be in many different places where life is not.
1: Yeah, just what is it about a physical object that we could detect and be pretty sure it came from something alive?
0: Enter Sarah Walker, our guest today. Sarah is an astrophysicist. She's a professor at Arizona State University, deputy director of the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science, and associate director of the ASU SFI Center for Biosocial Complex Systems.
1: Sarah, collaborator Lee Cronin, and others have recently proposed assembly theory as a way to think about the kinds of things we could detect as sure signs of life. In a lot of ways, their idea resembles others. Look for complex stuff that couldn't have been made by anything except something alive.
0: For instance, if we find chlorophyll or hemoglobin on one of Saturn's moons, we could be pretty sure that life was there. Plenty of
1: big, multifaceted molecules like nucleic acids and some peptides can form spontaneously, as the Miller-Urey experiments famously showed.
0: But some molecules are just far too unlikely to arise without being the product of living systems.
1: What distinguishes Sarah's and Lee's idea is that this assembly index is calculable for anything. We can compare with the same number a simple peptide to a megamolecule like hemoglobin to even a bacterium or the whole human brain.
0: Only things with very high indices are likely to be signs of life. It's far too unlikely that such things would have arisen spontaneously without help from living systems.
1: Sarah used the example of a Lego Hogwarts castle in the show today to flesh out the idea. As she says, there's practically no way that a giant pile of colored Lego bricks could be assembled randomly into a Hogwarts castle. The particular finished form is the one built using a set of written instructions. You could get a castle or some other kind of castle-like building, but there are only a very few particular ways to become Hogwarts.
0: Something with so many pieces put together without a plan would much more likely be a mess than a castle.
1: In their Nature Communications paper from last year, on which our chat was based, Sarah and Lee said that to find life elsewhere in the universe, we can search for things with high assembly indices.
0: Overall, we had a great time talking with Sarah about assembly theory and its promise as a means to detect life.
1: But we challenged her to explain assembly theory's utilities for the origins and especially the actions of life. Previous guests Dan Nicholson, Nick Lane, and others have emphasized that life is a process more than a thing. We find that perspective really powerful as it integrates many factors we view as key to life metabolism, information processing, plasticity, and complexity.
0: Sarah claims that assembly theory captures these facets of life, but we had questions about how assembly theory gets us from life indices to actually being alive. You'll hear more about this in the show.
1: So Cam, which has the higher assembly index, a beer or a 10-year-old single malt Ardbeg Scotch?
0: Hmm, well, looking at Sarah's paper, it looks like Beer has an assembly index of 34, and scotch only has an assembly score of 16.
1: So victory for Bud Light, I guess.
0: I'm Cameron Gallenbor. And I'm Marty Martin. And this is Big Biology.
1: Sarah, thank you so much for coming back to Big Biology to talk about uh, your research and especially this new work that you've been doing with Lee Cronin and others on assembly theory. Um, When we get to that, but I think a lot of it has to do, based on our last conversation and what you work on, it, it is about the origins of life, yeah? So just... In a nutshell, if such a thing is possible, tell us about the sort of major ideas about origins of life and how yours differs or or where the overlap is.
2: Yeah. So I guess you're referring to like historically how we thought about the problem about the origin of life. And I think there it's really interesting to me because there's been a long history of chemists working on the problem, trying to synthesize components of life, um, which of course we think life emerged in chemistry. So it seems like a natural starting point. Um, But that's become really sort of like the focus there has been these are molecules that life on earth uses So if we make those molecules, we should be able to find the evolutionary pathway to life and we might make a specific molecule and so this is sort of the field of prebiotic chemistry synthesizing building blocks of life on earth based on the conditions of early earth Um, And then there's a a whole other sort of set of research that's focused on what's called the RNA world, which is in sort of a similar paradigmatic framework, which is we know RNA is really important in modern biology and might have been, and it's speculated to be the first genetic material. So if we can show how an RNA-based system alone can evolve or how it could emerge on a prebiotic planet, we might solve most of the origin of life problem. And so that's sort of a genetics first approach and then there's like this metabolism first which is kind of thinking more about energy cycles and how you might get self-reproducing chemical systems. So a lot of this is focused on how do I take pieces of life on earth and build them without life. And it's kind of almost like a reductionist approach to studying the origin of life, like if I can make the parts then I've solved the problem. and my perspective on that is like the first thing i can say is when i was a phd student i was in a cosmology group and i was trained in theoretical physics and i was going to these original life conferences and i remember being really shocked by the culture of origins of life, because you would go to an original life meeting, and almost no one would be talking about what I thought was the actual original life, the transition from non-life to life. <laughs> they would be talking about all these other problems. That seems important, I <laughs> yeah. think.
1: Yeah, that, that might be something that should come up.
2: Yeah, so, and I and I think it's because people thought, I mean, that is a really hard problem, right? So if you're, you're a practical scientist, it's not really like the first order question you ask, because, you know, the, the challenge is like, how do you even make entry points to that problem? And also, it's been the case that it, it was discouraged to actually like even try to figure out how to define life because that seems like you know everybody has to implicitly take a definition of life to do an original life experiment Um, but the actual act of going through the process of like rigorously vetting your definition and really like saying is this really what i mean when i say this thing is alive or it's life was sort of skipped because maybe that's not tractable on a phd life cycle or whatever the you know the 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 social dynamics of science are really quite challenging for hard problems and so my perspective on it was i care about working on the transition of non-life to life i think this problem is pretty fundamental i got into theoretical physics because i was romanticized by these like major revolutions in the way we thought about how reality worked and i was doing cosmology but i didn't see the next revolution in how we think about things happening in particle physics and cosmology, or even in most of the problems that physics departments were studying, also a little bit controversial. Um, but you know, most new physics has happened in areas we didn't expect. Um, and so I saw origin of life as being like a fertile area for thinking about what other kinds of physics might operate in our universe, and maybe we didn't, we didn't recognize that yet because we hadn't invented that. And if you look at the history of science, it's you know, kind of clear that like, probably at any point in history, we haven't discovered everything. So why should we think that we've discovered all the fundamental laws now? So I'm very open to the possibility of new principles. And so then that became for me, what's different about life versus non-life, and the key concept there became this one of information being a fundamental category of nature. Um, And so most of the rest of my career has been built on this idea that the origin of life has something to do with when physics associated information being a causal category or actually doing things in the universe becomes a prominent feature. And I still think that's what the origin of life transition is, but I think like the way that that physics might look might be very different than the way we originally posed that kind of problem. And so most of my career, I've gone through these, what people think are pretty radical conceptual shifts. Like someone told me once, like, I've seen you give a talk two years ago, and this talk is totally different. And I'm like, but it's the same idea. (laughs) Um (laughs) Well,
1: that's good. I mean, it's just showing your ability to... You know, adjust as the data tell you otherwise or the new ideas come. Yeah, that's that's what we should aspire for. Yeah,
2: yeah. And also, the hard, you know, hard problems are hard for a reason um, because we don't have the right concepts. So I think like being malleable to reframing it, but not keeping, you have to keep sort of the core things you think are important, but reframe it in a way that becomes more and more productive.
1: So say something more about information. I mean, I think, Cam, you had some pieces that you wanted to you wanted to dissect that a little bit.
0: Yeah, I guess, you know, as a as sort of like an evolutionary biologist, I think if, if you survey most biologists and you ask them, what do they think of when they think of information, they're going to automatically say DNA um, and the information contained within DNA and how that is translated into amino acids and proteins and eventually, you know, complex organisms. But I have a feeling like when you start to talk about the the physics of information that it's something much more than that and so I'm just kind of yeah I'd like to hear more about your thoughts on like what is information
2: yeah it's a great question um and I ask myself this all the time um and I'm I'm also not sure what I mean but I, I mean that in um Uh, both for fun, but also in a really um, serious sense, that when you're working on um, sort of the boundaries of what we know, like word choice becomes really important. And trying to map concepts to things that haven't been defined yet is really hard. So there's this whole set of words that we use in biology that we know vaguely apply, but people will you know, have radically different interpretations of what that means. So information is one of them, emergence is one of them, complexity is one of them, and then life is, you know, sort of all of those things bundled together. So it can be really confusing. And I feel like I have a sort of precise thing in my mind when I talk about information, but mapping it to concepts that we have and we can talk about readily because they already exist in sort of common sense of knowledge is not exactly there yet. And so I don't mean it in the sense that most people mean it in terms of, like, there's certain, you know, standard senses, like, you know, information is something that carries meaning. So this is one of the things with DNA, like, the information in DNA has a function in the cell, therefore DNA has information. And I also don't mean it in, like, a Shannon sense of information in terms of reduction of uncertainty. So, like, if I was holding an umbrella or something, you might know that it was raining in Arizona because why else would I, or maybe it's too sunny. I don't know, but you would have some information about the weather. Um, I guess since I'm you know, I'm in Arizona and I have an umbrella, then you know, it's sunny. If I was just had an umbrella, you might think it was raining. It
0: depends if it's monsoon season.
2: Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So obviously like your uncertainty and like the weather outside is reduced by this extra information. So a lot of people will talk about information in that sense. Um, and I think those are definitely relevant, but you know, there's a lot of smart people working on trying to think about information and how it maps to life. And so far, a lot of that landscape, I don't think, has really addressed this fundamental question about how life emerges or how we address the origin of life, or you know, even understanding life. I'm going to put it in quotes: the phenomena we recognize as the set of living things, from you know, like a more fundamental theory that the properties of those might be derivative from. And so, for me, the the properties of information that are most interesting are actually more closely tied to the concept of causation in biology and the fact that there are certain things that we think are abstract properties that actually have a causal role. Um, And so words carry information in the sense that, you know, maybe I can tell you both to raise your hand right now. (laughs) Maybe you'll raise, okay, so Cam did it. So, okay, I had some action at a distance. (laughs) I'm in Arizona and Cam's in Norway and, you know, words some some firing of neurons in my brain formed an abstract thing that you know like i i articulated and traveled over the computer and you know caused something to happen somewhere else but what it like is it describing those in terms of traditional material accounts is very hard but they seem very natural if you think that there's a property that's abstract like a word that can exist in a human brain can exist in sound waves can exist in a computer and then can um, you know, come out your computer, have roughly the same kind of causation and cause something that was intended on the other end. And that property, I think, is, is quite strange. And uh, DNA, you know, you think about information, uh, you could think about it with DNA, too. So DNA, obviously, like, the information is read out and has a function in the cell. Um, And so you can copy that information say from a DNA strand maybe to an alternative nucleic acid and as long as you have an Architecture for reading out that information it means the same thing or I could type up a gene on my computer nowadays And you could actually print the function of that sequence so that information retains the same meaning even though it's in silicon now Because we have technology that actually can now copy that information back into a protein in a different lab somewhere so Information has this disembodied property, and this is one of the reasons it's hard for physics because physics is used to dealing with material properties. And so the sort of original proposal that I came up with Paul Davies years ago about the origin of life transition was it was something about when information became a causal category and actually had this property of seeming to have a quote unquote life of its own as Paul would say, which is kind of a pun on the fact that we think information is describing life. But um, it doesn't seem that that, like if you think information is causal, now you're saying higher level things can have causes, minds can be causes, and now it's not just microscopic physics that's causal, and that enters this whole deep philosophical territory, which is problematic. So there's this whole conceptual territory here where we think this is a real phenomena and things are really happening, but we don't have the right scientific language for describing it at the level that we would describe
1: things in physics.
2: And maybe it doesn't exist there, but my personal bias yeah. is it does. So
1: well- can we connect this to assembly theory? Because information at least must've been an inspiration for you to, to start working on that. To what extent is that useful? And I mean, just generally, what is assembly theory? And, and I, I think it's exciting, but maybe you wanna to convey to the audience what it's so exciting about. Yeah,
2: so I also think it's exciting, which is why I work on it. And I also think um, in terms of like this conceptual territory that's really quite difficult that I've been talking about, I think it's the one place where I've seen a path That resolves a lot of these like really deep conceptual philosophical issues that most people don't even recognize are there with trying to address the origin of life transition. And to me, that's really deeply interesting. Um, so one of them is this, this sort of property of what does it mean for information to be causal and how do you think about material properties? Because basically it's like we think we have matter and we have like a platonic world of you know ideal objects and they're completely disembodied from the physical world. Like a perfect circle is a perfect circle no matter how you represent it, but you can't actually build a perfect circle. you know. And so some people are Platonists because they think matter mathematical forms do have a separate existence. And then some people are like strict materialists and they're like, no, it's all elementary particles. And in reality, I think it's somewhere in between where you can talk about the physicality of things that we think are these abstract objects and look abstract to us, but it's just because we can't see ourselves from the outside and actually look at ourselves as physical systems building abstractions. And I think assembly theory has some nice ways of, of addressing that that are kind of inspiring to me because they give me some new conceptual territory for thinking about that. But where this comes up that I can most clearly articulate it maybe is is this issue of like top-down causation and emergence, which are related concepts that people worry about quite a lot in some of the fields that I work in. Um, as far as the intersection of physics and biology. So in biology, we assume, you know, we're okay with, uh, minds having thoughts and, you know, like narratives at that level or DNA causing something to happen in a cell. And in physics, those things seem intractable. And what you really want to say is like, it's all just the elementary particles it can be described by standard model particle physics. And you're just coarse graining out some of those details to describe it at these levels. And so basically what we do is we, we take like the, the material particle physics narrative. And then we assume cells are sitting on top, like so you can take elementary particles and atoms to make the elements and then you make molecules and then you make cells and cells make multicellular organisms and they make societies and then they make technological civilizations. So we're sitting up here sliding on top of reality, but all the real stuff is happening down here. And that's sort of, it's one of the ways we talk about it. And so top down causation becomes perplexing because it's like, well, how can, you know, a technological civilization do a quantum physics experiment because now it's manipulating matter at the lowest scale of reality and so that seems really perplexing and what assembly theory does um, or at least this is the conceptual thing I think is most useful from the theory whether the theory itself or not is right or not is to say that these things that you're building up in a hierarchy are actually it's not a spatial hierarchy it's a temporal hierarchy and you're really talking about how extended in time is that object and so in evolution Evolutionary biologists, and this is why I like biologists sometimes better than physicists because they think in terms of time and physicists have for 300 years just pretty much said time doesn't exist because Newton said time doesn't exist. Um, You know, it's not it's not a natural category for us. It's always an emergent property or it's something that, you know, the equations of motion like equations of motion have to change with respect to something. So we invent this variable called time, but we don't really treat it as a property of things. But when you look at an evolved object, there's very clear that it arose because of a lineage of historical events leading to that object. Um, And so what assembly theory is basically doing is saying when you're talking about the histories of formation of objects, they're actually an intrinsic feature of the object. And so in elementary particles, they don't have that feature because they don't require history to build them. Nothing had to evolve with information to produce an elementary particle. It doesn't require any memory in the universe. They just spontaneously form. But if I want to say I want to make a complex molecule, I have to learn how to do that, I like DNA doesn't spontaneously fluctuate out of chemical systems, it has to be evolved in the context of a system that learns how to build it. And then we have a way in assembly theory of basically taking a molecular object, and fragmenting it. So like imagine you have a molecule or if you're not a chemist, which I'm not either, so I can sympathize. Um, I'm a physicist that likes to think about chemistry as the scale of reality life emerges in, but, um, but that's about all the chemistry I know. Um, you can think about a Lego object. So imagine over here I have um, the molecule Taxol and then over here I have a Lego, Hogwarts castle. Okay, they're kind of a maybe equivalent complexity objects. Um, and I deconstruct them. So over here you have Lego bricks, and over here you have atoms. Um, and now the operation of building up the assembly space for the object is basically to take two things. So I'm, I'm playing with Lego, but maybe you're playing with molecule and take two and stick them together. And then now I can take any piece I've built so far. So it could be that piece I built or one that's in the pool of elementary objects and stick it together and then build the next step. And you basically do this recursive process of trying to build up to the original object by using pieces that you've built in the past. And so for molecules, it ends up being the case that we build it up by making bonds. So you can't build an assembly space in an arbitrary way. It has to be physically meaningful, which is where I think some people get confused with computational complexity because. I'll talk about it in a few minutes um, if it becomes relevant, but our biosignature measure is based on a minimal path in an assembly space. And that gets a little bit confused with the way people talk about shortest path in computer programs being related to computational complexity. But we don't make an arbitrary graph to build a molecule. We have to do it based on bonding rules and how bonds are formed in the real physical universe. So there's a very specific graph you can build. And the idea and the implication there and why it's relevant for thinking about the physics of how molecules get built in the real universe is in order to build a molecule, you do it by making bonds. So there has to be a constraint in the environment that forces that bond to form. And that constraint could be geochemistry, it could be uh, an autocatalytic set, it could be an evolved organism, or it could be a chemist in the lab. But something has to exist that constrains the space for those particular bonds to form. And then the recursion part is an implication that there had to be memory in the system. So in order to reuse a piece, it means it had to be built in the past. Um, So assembly spaces capture the physics of the object. So in Lego, you can't, you know, if I had super glue, I could maybe stick my Lego together this way. But usually, you know, they have the little dots on top and you have to put them together this way. So there's physical constraints on Legos about how you can build Hogwarts Castle, and that constrains the set of objects you can build. And so, so this is sort of the idea of an assembly space, and you can do that for all possible paths for building something. And then that becomes the fundamental object in the theory, is an assembly space so Hogwarts castle has a set of ways that you can make Hogwarts and that is Hogwarts and a molecule has a set of ways of making it and that is that that is the object so you're not now you're not saying a Hogwarts castle is an instantaneous object you're saying a Hogwarts castle is a physical representation of all the ways the universe can build it And this becomes an informational concept because now you're not saying the thing is the material. The thing is the actual set of operations to build it, which is meaning that there had to be information in the environment. Something has to have knowledge of this particular step or constraints for this particular step.
1: Right, right. So the, the structure of the res, of the result is in a way kind of all the aggregated information through that you know that long time series of, of things. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And the thing that's interesting to me about this is like the huge inversion in logic, because most people want to talk about information in terms of context, like a DNA, uh, a strand of DNA gets read out and has some meaning in the cell. And what Assembly is doing by saying a DNA is all the way, like a DNA molecule is all the ways of making it, is making that information intrinsic and treating DNA, any strand of DNA, as a product of evolution. um, Because there's a lot of steps involved in making it, which requires some historical contingency and some acquisition of information to get to DNA. And so you've completely removed this question of, this DNA has meaning in the cell and this one doesn't, what do I do with it and how do I understand that? You just say, all DNA is a product of evolution. And um, and so it's like it's just a totally different way of saying it. And then just for the audience, I guess this becomes relevant to the the life question, an original life question, because we have. (laughs)
1: Good. I was going to ask you about that part. Thank (laughs) you. Sorry, it was a really (laughs) long-winded
2: explanation of the assembly space stuff. But I I really want to have this conceptualization of thinking about objects in time before we like relate it back to life, because I think I think it's a major innovation, and it's like it's fertile ground to play with. But the reason we think this is related to life is if that minimal steps is too long. It requires a system that evolved or learned or has some information in memory about how to make that object. So, with Hogwarts Castle, for example, imagine I had just put the Legos on the table and I didn't give you the instructions. <laughs> and maybe uh, you're a child that never read Harry Potter, and I said, "Make Hogwarts." Like, what is the likelihood of you even being able to build that object, right? So, the fact that you could even imagine the experiment probably means that you have some cultural. Association with my cultural background, right? But like there was a goal in mind, and you can imagine building toward that goal, and probably you were assuming you had the, you know, the Lego instructions in front of you to build it. So Hogwarts has a very high assembly index. Um, the minimal path to make Hogwarts by randomly constructing it, just by joining operations, is quite large. You know, if I had said, let's just stick three blocks together, red, blue, red, you know, that would be pretty easy for you to randomly assemble. Um, And so the idea is that everything can be tiered by this minimal path, which we call the assembly index, and the things that have a a larger depth in time require more minimal steps, more memory to produce them, are more evolved objects. They require more evolution to get to them, more knowledge, more learning. So technological things are are probably quite deep in that space. Some molecules are quite deep in that space and might be deeper than humans even because they're so complicated. But um, it's interesting to me because it's like you can now take all objects that are combinatorially built and stack them by the likelihood of them being products of evolution and then have some kind of ordering there. And that, that becomes the coarse graining in the is now, one in terms of ordering in time, not a spatial hierarchy.
0: When I was in graduate school, there was this uh, kind of very influential paper that came out by uh, Sothmari and John Maynard Smith in Nature, on the major evolutionary transitions in life uh, kind of one of the points of that paper that that I felt was a bit abstract was the you know the this kind of conclusion that these major transitions in life involve changes in the how information is stored and transmitted and whenever there's something happens like that you get one of these kind of major shifts is that concept captured at all in in assembly theory is it is the is the way information the nature of information and how it's stored and transmitted as you go from the building blocks of a molecule or Hogwarts castle is there also something changing as you're moving up that chain
2: yeah i think there there's kind of a two-tier question there there's one about like how would concepts from information map to assembly spaces and the other one is would assembly be able to explain features of evolution like major evolutionary transitions? And so the first thing I can say is like super early days of the theory, and you know it may not explain everything in, in biology. It's you know it's like we're designing it specifically for the origin life problem. And really the theory is developed. It's it's an, we think it's an exact theory in molecules, and actually you can measure assembly index for molecules. Um, so you can go in the lab and measure this depth and time for molecules. So we wanted to be able to do it to say if we had an experiment could we measure when life emerged in that experiment? And we actually had something that was a product of evolution. But my goal, and, and this is something that Lee and I have been working on together with several people in our lab, is to develop it into a general theory of physics that might apply to other living systems, and we expect should apply. Um, and so one of the places I'm really interested in applying it is collective behavior, which is a project going on in my lab. But so those caveats are just to say, right now, it's very origin life-focused, but Presumably, there are concepts we're trying to map from these different spaces, and some of them are better developed than others. But for me, the concept of information is interesting, and I don't know how directly this is going to address your question, but I think it's relevant because I think we have these ways of talking about information storage and processing. And I would say that's more related to sort of the Shannon-esque information concept and not so much this idea that I was saying earlier, which is where I think about information as copyable causation in some sense. Um, So if you can copy causation between physical systems, then that seems to suggest something really interesting is going on to me. Um, And so the way we build these assembly spaces, we actually think of them, sometimes we'll talk about assembly pathway as a causal chain. It's all the, the causal sequence of events necessarily to build that object. And so now you're thinking about that object now as this layered structure of the way of building it. So that object is now this thing that exists across time and has the structure associated to it. And so there's the physical thing you see. And in assembly theory, things are only actually objects if they have multiple copies. And this is also another subtlety because the implication there is first, you can't ever measure it unless it exists in multiple copies. And the more copies you have, the more credence it gives to this idea that there was something there that could build it. So you you might I don't believe this is true, but some people believe that the universe can spontaneously produce any object at any time, right? Like can just fluctuate into existence. And I think that's tantamount to saying that the universe has design for every object in every point in space and time at every moment. It, it's the same thing. Like people don't realize that it's baking intelligent design in every point of space time. If you say like brains can spontaneously fluctuate, in, like because they're products of evolution. That's that's what evolution does. Evolution is the universe's physical mechanism of making complex stuff. Um, So if you completely remove that, then you're just saying, you know, spontaneous universe can make it for free then there's no reason for evolution to exist, but, yeah. but that's a whole, a, whole, a whole separate can of worms and not exactly where I was intending to go. Um, so so think about these objects as these things in time becomes relevant for talking about information because there's a the physical object, and if you have many copies of the physical object, then you identify the physicality of the object, like the molecule. But when we say it's a thing that, that exists across time, there's all these features of it that you're not directly interacting with, but nonetheless have existence to them. And so the way that I play around with that idea right now um, in sort of our, our assembly theory working group is to talk about virtual objects and physical objects. So there's things that exist in the assembly space, like every DNA molecule shares certain structural motifs. Right. And and sometimes you can't hold those in your hand because they might be a bonding pattern that never exists as an isolated molecule. But it's actually a physical feature and it's a feature of the assembly space. And those are propagating in the biosphere just as much as a DNA molecule is because a DNA molecule that you can physically hold is propagating in the biosphere. Um, And so I think assembly theory actually allows you to talk about objects that we observe but also this larger space that they exist in in terms of the ways of assembling them this object across time in a way that's unified as the same object. Um, So information is actually just depth and time. I gave this example last weekend in Santa Fe about like, you know, three classes of objects you might imagine. So there's like elementary particles. They always exist. Universe generates them anytime. then there's these are going to be very human centric examples i'm sorry i'm a human so i always
1: do this (laughs) that's to be expected that's okay
2: i mean them to be biologically motivated but there's things like rockets right so like Humanity could imagine rockets for a long time before we build them And now we have like a physical object that exists on this planet. That's a rocket that can be launched into space So it's like something you can point at you can't hold a rocket because they're big or maybe a little rocket You could hold if it's like, you know, like a kid's rocket or something And then there's things like I mentioned before like a perfect circle Like it's something humanity can imagine we can try to build circles, but they'll never be perfect circles but that's still an object that exists in the space of like what it is to be human, so so these things have kind of different physicality to them in terms of like whether they can actually become an independent object you can hold, or if they're just going to be features of the space, and I think assembly theory allows us to talk about all three of those cases in the same language, which is why I really like it. So basically like what we're doing is reinventing the concept of matter to now be this causal chain of ways to make something that you observe, and so to get to the question of major transitions, you know, I'm talking about molecules, um, but once you have molecules and they become physical objects, now you can start talking about putting molecules together to make higher order structures. So, so there is sort of a sense that you can talk about major transitions being now you have an assembly space built out of objects that themselves are assembly spaces. That's very abstract, but, but this is sort of, we haven't dealt with this, but that's sort of how I imagine it. But
1: that's, that's where, that's the kind of thing that I think it would be fun to talk about because that, I mean, again, I really think that assembly theory is cool and that doesn't mean very much because I, you know, I'm not, not a mathematician, not a physicist, really don't know what I'm talking about, but for what it's worth, the piece that I couldn't get my head around though, is this back a few minutes ago, when we talked about the origins of life, the different ways of thinking about that, you mentioned metabolism. It's a profound, so many people have argued that we've had Nick Lane on the show. We've talked about this a whole bunch, but where's metabolism in assembly theory? I mean, like some of the things that you're saying, I can hear that it might be there, especially that last little part, but the maintenance of a system, right. And, and getting the resources to make things get more complex, like all of those different pieces. I didn't, I just can't get my head around how that's in there, presumably it is but but yeah how does that work how's metabolism fit into the story
2: yeah yeah i can definitely explain that i also want to clarify something about like like new the- like so i think people think a theory like you're saying like uh like you can like assembly theory and not have any conception of mathematics and in fact we still are like trying to figure out what is the right mathematical representation of the theory i think it's like you should think of a good theory as a set of concepts and like are those concepts rich and do they open up new conceptual territory and i would call that a good theory and the fact you can formalize them as mathematical statements is means you're just making that conceptual richness more precise so you can actually share it more widely yeah that's fair and, and people confuse this because they think theories are the mathematical statement but it's I, but i but i think that's just a compress- of like the set of ideas so so I think I think what I like about assembly theory um, you know from the physics and math standpoint is it gives me a new conceptual playground for playing with these kind of ideas To answer your question um, more directly about the metabolism first usually people are thinking about you know in my early career I was also very excited about the set of ideas like autocatalytic sets um, which probably you're both familiar with but maybe people in the audience aren't so these are it was originally proposed by Stuart Kaufman. And the idea was, instead of having a molecule that can copy itself, so it reproduces itself, you might have a molecule that catalyzes this reaction, which produces this molecule that catalyzes this reaction, and you get a closed cycle. And so it became a model of how you could have collective reproduction in chemistry. Um, And there's all kinds of ways of Theoretically modeling this people like to do what are called these like binary polymer models. So you have like a, you know, a string of zeros and ones, which is meant to model a biological polymer. And then they're acting on each other and you assign some random probability of this one catalyzing these two joining together and that one catalyzing that one. And then you can see this sort of phase transition where if the rate of the likelihood of things being catalytic is high enough you'll spontaneously always get cycles. And so Stu had proposed this as a phase transition associated with the origin of life. Um, And that life was like this kind of crystallization where you would just, no matter what, as long as you had enough diversity of polymers and enough catalytic rate, you should get life-forming. And a lot of people have been trying to build these things in the lab, and it turns out they're actually really pretty brittle. And what I mean by that is um, it's very hard to make an autocatalytic set work. It's a beautiful idea, and I do think there's a lot of merit to this idea of these self-reproducing cycles, but we haven't really been able to get one to form de novo. And even when you build them in the lab, you kind of have to sort of fine-tune the parameters of your experiment to get it to be stable. And then there's all these other issues of evolvability, although some people are developing some really interesting things about selecting on motifs and molecules, and then that's the the thing that propagates and that actually gets closer to how you would think about it in assembly theory um, and the way the way I think about it so imagine again a molecule is an assembly space in a Kauffman model you would just deal with the objects and the objects act on other objects but now if you're thinking about a molecule as an assembly space any pieces of the molecule can become a part of an autocatalytic cycle And so this feature that it has to be the molecules acting on other molecules, I think is not actually looking at the fact that molecules themselves are hierarchically structured objects. Um, And so in ecosystem ecology, of course, like people know there's like all of these hierarchies of cycles of things interacting. Like, so we have chemical cycles in an ecosystem, and then we have like, you know, organismal cycles, maybe the microbes, and then they go through like multicellular organisms. And so we know things are hierarchically organized, but when you get to the molecular level, people just want to treat molecules as whole objects and not actually as hierarchies themselves and in assembly theory they're hierarchically assembled objects so any piece of that can actually be a part of an autocatalytic cycle and and so we're doing some things in my lab trying to to develop like what that looks like and how autocatalytic sets emerge out of that and how that's related to this concept of information in terms of like the virtual spaces and stuff I was talking about before.
0: So if I follow that argument uh, somewhat it Rather than thinking of like uh, metabolism as like an alternative sort of explanation, it's actually assembly theory is robust enough that it can encompass having a hierarchical molecular structure and having an autocatalytic sort of component to it, as opposed to those being alternatives.
2: Yeah, so if I ignore assembly theory for a minute, and I just go back to like sort of original motivations and origins of life and, and what we talked about at the beginning of the discussion, there's always this kind of like... Genetics first, metabolism first. And if you want to think about it from an informational perspective, people talk like digital origin of life. I'm copying bits of information from molecule to molecule, or it's like more analog because the rates matter and all this other kind of stuff. And so, in some sense, it's really got to be both, but you have to think about it at a level of abstraction where those categories emerge over time as biology becomes more sophisticated. So, like, what would be the unification of those two approaches? Um, and, you know, my feeling about it is assembly theory and what we're doing exists at that intersection somewhere, but it doesn't look like those things, like at all on the surface, which is why it's so hard, conceptually hard. But it, but also, like, if you look at, you know, again, going back to the history of physics, because I'm trained that to think that way, <laughs> indoctrinated, <laughs> uh, you know, that's right. <laughs> um, I, I always think about like the history of unifications in physics like there are all these these places where like thinking about Einstein and like thinking about Unifying the constancy of the speed of light with the fact that all observers, you know, have to observe the same thing Like he's like basically making laws and the speed of light like a law like property So he unified these kind of things and said these are the same things and I'm going to hold this true And then you get like curvature of space and time out of that Like anytime we unify things the structures you get out of it as far as how the theory looks and what it tells you are totally different than your starting point and so I guess this was part of my point about, you know, the concepts need to be able to evolve because in order to do this tunneling operation to get to these new ideas, they, they will, I think, in most cases look radically different than what you expect or how to map them back. But I, I like this process and I like what you guys are asking about, like, how does how does this thing I know in biology fit?
1: Can, can I try to pull it full circle? I mean, I, I think this is, this is all great and I feel much more comfortable. I, I think I understand it more than I did 10 minutes ago. But one of the, one of the really nice examples that, that Cam picked up on, Cam, I'm going to use your question here. You mentioned Taxol just a minute ago and we've, we've sort of touched on these molecular assembly indices, but you guys wrote in the paper that E. coli and Taxol have the same number. So this is a bacterium and Taxol have the same or about the same number. How are we to think about that? I mean, for a biologist to read that, that is very surprising, so ha- help me understand that.
2: So Taxol is obviously like a human constructed object, right? So, so I think there's like depth in time in terms of like the evolution of objects, and then there's depth in time about how hard it is it to make that object. And so we're used to thinking in terms of historical sequence of events, and assembly theory is really dealing with how hard is it in the universe for, for this object to be generated. Um, in terms of like minimal number of steps in the structure of the assembly space. And Taxol is a very, very complex molecule and requires a lot of features associated with E. coli is a composite of a maybe a bunch of molecules that are a lower complexity. And maybe not, we're not dealing with like macromolecular stuff, but maybe like metabolic stuff. It becomes a question of like this architecture of like the minimal amount of information to produce that object. And so I I think these kind of features of it are really challenging because the concepts of time, like I say, it's a theory about time, but the concept of time is not like this linear time or evolutionary time. It's this other kind of arrangement about, it's almost like molecular time, like how hard is it to build this thing?
1: Right. But some part of that, doesn't some part of that have to account for the fact that E. coli can do amazing things throughout it's lifetime or lineage time, the taxol can't.
2: Right. So th- but this this again goes to the point I made before. Like, so we're not dealing with the function of the object, right? So like I, I made this point actually with DNA. Like it's not about whether this strand of DNA is functional or not. It's like, is this a product of evolution and how much, how much had to go into like how much memory and knowledge is necessary to exist to construct this object. And so E. coli will have different properties um in terms of the dynamics of how it interacts with other objects what features it shares and the fact that it, it's alive and taxol is a product of life right but that's not what the assembly index itself is measuring or assembly number and so there, there are some features of the theory that I want. So I wrote this essay with Michael Lachman um, also a couple years ago on this concept of life versus alive. And, and Michael's always like, assembly theory is about life. It's not about alive. Um, but I think it's actually about both. Um, and I think we agree it's about both. It's just a matter of the stage of development of the theory. But the, the distinction there was that life is the set of all objects that require evolution to produce them. So things like water bottles or taxol are life. But... There are objects that are active in that process and construct new possibility spaces. And E. coli certainly does that, whereas Taxol, well, Taxol does in the sense that, you know, it's an anti-cancer drug and it does certain things. But we don't deal with the diversity of functions of the object. We deal with the diversity of ways things could functionally operate on the object to make it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what, what I have. I mean, I'm a, I'm a biologist, right? Everything that I see is through that lens. It's hard for me, not just as a biologist, but as a physiologist to think about anything biological that doesn't have function. I mean, just in the same way that you're talking about information, it doesn't make a lot of sense. This is maybe the life alive distinction too. It really doesn't make a lot of sense to talk about life if it doesn't have a lo- an alive element, <laughs> right?
2: Right. But but it's it yeah but it's it's also not it's not absent of the concept of function it's just inverted it so you, we're used to thinking about function as something an object does to other things and assembly treats function as what do things have to do to make that object and that is actually really important at least for the problems of origin life and life detection in particular because you have to. The, I think a lot of the conceptually hard things about biology are a lot of the concepts are not intrinsic features of the objects that we're talking about. They're extrinsic features, they're relational features. And when you talk about relational features, it means if I have this DNA molecule in this cell, it means this thing. And if I put it over here, it's read out as something else, right? So, you know, like just as an example, or like if I put my E. coli in this environment, it functions this way. And if I put it in this environment, it functions this way. But if you look at the assembly of an E. coli and you look at it in either environment, presuming that the molecular composition is the same because it might be ingesting different food and have subtleties associated with that, it's supposed to be an invariant feature that's independent of in the environment because now you've made you've made function an intrinsic property. There had to be these sets of functions in order for this thing to come to exist. In a m- molecule, you think about that, these bonds have to be makeable.
1: Right, I mean, I, again, in, in the context of molecules, I, I I can be completely on board, but it's some it's a something about this other piece of it. Um, I don't know if you know Scott Turner, but Cam and I have been talking about this paper that he wrote recently. He's a past guest too. Um, He's really big into agency, and he wrote a paper with a super controversial title, and I don't want to go down that road, Do Species Want to Evolve?
2: Ah, I like that so title. So in the
1: context of our conversation, yeah, I mean, it's kind of fun, yeah. but there's a reason that I I don't really I don't really find that compelling. But then the first part of the paper, what's really neat about it, is that he's pushing biologists to stop focusing on objects. I mean, biology is a discipline. Evolutionary biology has been a thing of objects in the simple sense, not in the way that I think you're using in the context of assembly theory. He's advocating for a process. And so for, you know, many different people are talking about biology, it's better understood as a process. And I think, you know, reading him and hearing you, in many ways, you're talking about the same thing, but it's back to the point that you were making about words being slightly different. I mean, but, it, but meaningfully, very importantly different in how they're being used.
2: Yeah, I can translate that. I mean, I, I would say in assembly theory, processes are the objects.
1: Yeah, exactly. Right. And so that,
2: that's why it's conceptually confusing because we're, we're merging categories that people have traditionally considered separate.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I get that now. I'm still not quite sure what to do with it. And the, the fun and the, the difficult thing with conversations like this is we're excited. We're all interested in the same kinds of things, but we just, we speak, don't know what we're talking we about. We're talking about <laughs> and we speak a different language when we say it. So <laughs> why does anybody listen to us talk about these I know.
2: <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I mean, I keep doing this because I'm trying to figure out the right way to talk about it to like, I like, you know, and part of it's like, uh, and also you guys know this very well like when you're developing new ideas like you don't even understand them as you're talking about them sometimes so i think this is like an incredibly rich way of thinking about it but i don't know if it's going to help you know biologists answer their questions on a day-to-day basis although i think there are certain places where i can see it really maybe adding concept like new conceptual dimensions and and new kinds of insights so
1: Totally. So, so let's, let's talk about agency. Cause I think to me, it feels like that might be a place, but, but Cam, do you want to say your piece about
0: uh, agency? Maybe not quite yet. Um,
1: <laughs> I put you on the spot. I'm sorry. Well,
0: I mean, I, maybe before we, we get into agency, I, you know, I, I read recently the paper you had in nature communications where you and your colleagues kind of um, build this computational model and you describe the formation of these molecules uh, by this assembly process, and you you come up with this m a number that Marty was talking about the molecular uh, assembly index number. And then you test this empirically. Like so you know, at that point, now, as a biologist, I saw things in the, in this paper like you know, using the same compounds that were used in the milRI experiment. I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that for my introductory biology class. And so that became much more sort of like like real, like more tangible. Like I could see, where the theory and the model and the empirical test were all starting to put flesh on the bones, so to speak. But then, you know, this is maybe a difficult question to ask, but like um, in the end, I saw that like the MA index number and the number of peaks on the mass spec that sort of describe kind of how complex, you know, this molecule was, for example, you know, they line up really nicely. So then you know I, I was I was trying to think about like if you had written a different paper like for a biochemistry journal, and you instead of having this very broad theory, instead you you simply, in the introduction, made some comment like, you know more complex molecules will have more peaks on on the mass spec. Let's go out and empirically test that and then find it. And then hey that might make a good way of testing for potential life on other planets. I guess from a biology perspective, you know, can you kind of fill in a little bit more about like the importance of of the theory behind those tests cuz I think that would help fill in some of the gaps I think for for people and myself.
2: Yeah, so I think the first is like the motivation. So the the motivation is life detection. So it's not like an, an ancillary feature. Right. So you want to be able to motivate that you have some explanatory framework that maps to some concepts we associate to life or has some resolve some of the ambiguity around that discussion. You want it to be quantitative and you need it to be empirically observable because you need to go out and measure it. So that was sort of the starting point for us. And of course, part of that has to be some sort of conceptual foundation about what it is you're trying to measure and how it maps to concepts of living things. And people say complexity all the time as being a feature of life, but it's such a vague concept. And there are actually a lot of molecular complexity measures that are out there that you might be able to measure from, like, the graph of a molecule, but you can't measure with an instrument. Or you might be able to measure them with an instrument, but they don't have a natural interpretation in terms of, like, what do you do for on the theory construction side. So I think what, what gets hard in this kind of area is when you're trying to bridge theory to experiment the level of convergence and the discussions that you have to have. Like for me personally, explanations almost matter more than data. Um, So there's always this kind of thing that like, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And I think it's like the opposite. It's like, you know, you could have extraordinary explanations for really simple evidence, but like the, the explanation has to be like rock solid and like explanatory and predictive. And it has to, to stand up to a whole variety of different tests. So the way I think about it and why I got really excited about working in this space was there was a measure that captured some of the features that I had for a long time been thinking were perplexing about life. And most of the things that I think are really interesting are are related to the complexity that life generates. Like, I think this is, when I say information, what I really mean is life seems to do interesting things in a way that, you know, it's producing things that the laws of physics alone would have no idea how to produce. And there's this huge possibility space of things the universe can create, but it can't create all of them. And biology seems to be the thing that's exploring that space. And for me, that's the most important feature. And assembly captured, for me, some really interesting features of that, but it was very clear what it was in molecules and it was measurable. And so that's at the level that I got excited because being a physicist, I wanted to reason from objects you can actually measure in the lab and properties you can measure in the lab to build theories that explain these features. And before getting involved in this particular theory, I had been talking about concepts of information and causation for a long time without a way of actually mapping it to a measurement you could do in the lab. I mean people could take measurements I can apply information theory to them but but a lot of that is very subjective because it depends on how you're like labeling the data as far as like what kind of information you observe in the system like what data you collect so I think I think the idea of having the assembly index give a scale and that that was theoretically motivated by this idea of the search space getting exponentially larger and the volume of of hitting that target getting exponentially smaller, giving credence to the fact that this was capturing features that indicate there had to be something to build this object. Otherwise, like you could just do a complexity measure and life is different than non-life, but it doesn't give you anything to go on. It doesn't actually give you I mean, people do this all the time. They want to machine learn and classify data and then there's a black box and they have no idea what a data is classified that way. And I don't think that's a way to make progress in science. I think I think you really need theory working closely with experiment personally to solve hard problems.
0: Yeah, no, I think that 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 that's super helpful. I mean, I think for especially for like graduate students and people who are earlier in their career, especially I think for biologists because I think with the advent of all the new technological advances and the bioinformatic advances that are changing, like almost on a weekly basis that you mentioned that in physics, you're very concerned about the history of ideas. And I, I worry in biology that you know, I've I've heard students say like, oh, that paper was published in like 1977, so it's it's probably like not that relevant anymore. I'm like, what are you talking about? That's a classic paper, you know. And, oh no! <laughs> but I think it's because of the you know everybody's, what's the latest greatest new technology for measuring things, and and it's become divorced from from the theory. So I so I, I that's why I actually really appreciated seeing that whole buildup. And, you know, and so that, that question I asked maybe was, was sort of a trick question to kind of get you to kind of justify why, why it's so important to do that.
2: No, I definitely appreciate the question. And I think also it's hard to understand the space that we're trying to build with this collaboration that we have on this origin life stuff, because it's trying to bridge theory and experiment and developing new concepts. And like having, like, it's just covering so many dimensions of things that I think, you know for people to really get a handle on what it is that we're trying to do from the outside is like super hard so i really appreciate the like the care you guys are having to to try to understand, <laughs> I also am, you know, like people are like scared of crit- criticism, but I'm always like, I just want to embrace as much of it as possible because you get the feedback faster, you can improve the ideas faster. And I think one thing I really like um, is like in our whole collaboration of people working on this set of stuff, is we all are like super open to criticism among each other and also from other people and like really open talking about it because the whole goal is to advance the science faster. So we have to bridge as many things as possible. Um, but that goes back to the efficiency thing. It's like, I want to solve the origin of life before I die.. <laughs> 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 I really do. Good, so, luck. Good um, luck
1: on that. I, I'm, I'm right behind you. Good luck.
2: <laughs> but there's a lot of things you have to pull together to answer a question of that magnitude. So it's really challenging. Yeah, but,
1: but the approach, I mean, what, what you're saying, taking criticism, being open, just I, I have this thing that a lot of my collaborators have an issue with when we're working on manuscripts together. I'm like, look, if you have a better way to say it, just write it. I don't need to track changes. I don't need any of that. Let's just continue to work on it until we all agree it's better. And then it's better. Right. Yeah. But a lot of people are weirded out by that sort of thing. So, Sarah, let's go off planet, but we're we're going to keep agency with us because I don't want to get away from from that piece. So in a kind of lightning round, but feel free to skip questions, expound, do do whatever you want to do. I just want to run through a bunch of different things about what assembly theory might say about life elsewhere. But let's start with agency. If you can briefly define it as you think about it, and maybe in the context of, of assembly theory, but I want to try to push you as far as you're willing to go to be a biologist and first tell us will there be? Are there biological systems that are non-agential? And what kind of role do you think that agency has played in the evolution of life on Earth? I told you that was lightning round. That's like its own two-hour podcast.
2: (laughs) No, I I like this. Actually, I was gonna make a joke where you were like, "Let's go off planet," but we won't leave the agency behind. And I was like, gonna be like, "It's kind of hard to leave agency behind anywhere because it's how you get everywhere." (laughs) We won't (laughs) go (laughs) far. Yeah. Um, I I I like the concept a lot. Obviously, it's like it's a concept that means different things to different people. But I think this idea that organisms or biological things can be their own causes and like and have goal-directed behavior, and that some of these things that seem to teleological are actually real properties in biology I think is a real thing and so um, for me the feature I think is interesting about agency goes back to sort of all of it comes always comes back for me like what do I think the core things that life are doing are different and one of them is life is the thing that builds stuff in the universe that's like you know non-trivial stuff not a better than elementary particles. And it's not just that it builds it, it imagines it and then creates it. And you know, you can wax philosophical about how much imagination E. coli has or something, but E. coli is innovative to a degree, but not, maybe not as innovative as a human. And so, um, so I do think about that quite a bit in terms of what we're doing with assembly theory. And actually, Lee and I have a grant right now that's um, studying goal-directed behavior in complex chemical systems is the title of it, which is trying to use assembly theory to try to explicate goal-directed behavior. And the whole premise of it there for me is, so there's kind of trivial statements that like, so I'm going to tie agency to goal-directed behavior because I think goal-directed behavior is a little bit, and maybe maybe you guys agree or don't agree, that's a property of agents, I don't know. No,
0: no,
1: no, I'm
2: with okay. you so far, yep, yep. I'm, I'm like, so like stop yep. me there if the biologists not I'm don't... uncomfortable <laughs> with the
0: concept of goal-directed anything.
2: Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> no, it's, so, but why is that though, actually?
0: Well, I think there are alternative explanations aside from the the sort of anthropomorphic consciousness associated with goal direction cuz that there's certainly potential for a lot of that kind of heavy baggage to those words can be very loaded and so i think for a lot of people including myself like it's an it instantly kind of like Puts me on guard.
2: Good, you should be on guard.
0: (laughs) And it's and and it's. We don't want any magic in the room. Well, it's for the reasons you said because it, it starts to get into the the old theological arguments that have been debated for a long time and refuted, and you know, kind of is this now the latest version of that? You know, that's what I'm struggling with.
2: Yeah, so I think I actually agree with you on a lot of those points, and for me, it's always like people are talking about this, and it's consistently reappearing so that suggests to me there's something there but we don't know how to talk about it in a way that is convincing right so So when I say I believe in goal-directed behavior, I think the class of things that people talk about where they say systems have goals are probably hinting at something interesting happening, but like what is that thing and we haven't identified it. The other thing that, and this actually came out of, this is going to sound even more, uh, it might ruffle your feathers even more, Cam, but this actually came out of my thinking about like consciousness originally because people are so introspective and so focused on the problem of experience. And I, you know, that problem's really intractable for a lot of reasons, but I thought, like, if experience is a real physical thing, there must be, like, ways of measuring it, but, like, not the subjective part, but maybe an objective part. And the objective part would be, does experience have causal consequences or does it do anything in the universe? And Dan Dennett actually had, like, some rephrasing of the hard, problem of consciousness is the hard question of consciousness, like, what does consciousness do, not what is it? And actually, it's interesting, because when we're talking about life with assembly theory, it's a theory of what life does, not what life is. And so it's kind of interesting when you reframe the questions that way, they become like more tractable to the methods of science and physics in particular. So, so that came for me, like thinking about this concept of imagination, like it's interesting to me that we build representations of our mind of things like rockets and then we can build them. So this is also the property of goals that seem interesting to me, is they seem very abstract. And like we're saying, this object has a representation in its mind that of something it wants to go toward, but we can't measure the representation because we're just measuring the physical behavior of the object. So I came up with this test with Lee that w- was part of our proposal and and actually I just want to write a paper just on this. A test, because I think if I can just nail down this kind of idea, it'd be really interesting about like a, an actual physical experimental test for goal-directed behavior. But like, if you can imagine, like you want to say this, it's not like, it's not a ball rolling down a hill. Like a goal is not an optimization problem. It's it, like somehow we have some sense it's a choice, right? And then, and then there might be like equivalent outcomes or there's some modeling of the future to say that there's a goal in the future. Um, but you're talking about it in the instantaneous object. And so the way that can maybe be formalized, and I, I don't know, like, I haven't worked out all the details, so it's thought in progress. But when I mean, you have to a, experimental system, like an oil droplet that you've evolved in a maze, and it has presented with the equivalent choice, so there's like a symmetry break in that you would expect 50% of the time it's going to go down this tube, and 50% of the time it's going to go down this tube because there's no physical difference, but it consistently goes down one tube, which suggests it has a like, and maybe there's actually like a benefit to going down that tube, like there's some other, you know, like, like how we see organisms moving up gradients there's food that they learned is there right that's a goal so if you can imagine presenting a physical system with equivalent opportunities but there's something in the future that will happen in one and not the other and and so it really requires some representation or modeling of the future in order to observe that behavior then I think you can isolate the fact that that's a goal-directed system and has representation.
0: Yeah. So I, I'm not sure about the oil droplet, but for <laughs> uh, for any kind of biological system that's a product of evolution and history, then you know if there is a benefit to going in one to one side, you know that's because there is information that is stored that's a product of of that evolutionary history that helps in make making that decision and that's what i struggle with is is how to separate the concept of agency from from the process of natural selection
2: oh you can't they're the same thing
0: okay well then we're in total agreement (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
2: so, um, no, but but, but, I, but I mean that in a really serious, like, so with this oil droplet experiment, of course you would have have to, have like, you can't just stick an oil droplet and expect it to behave that. It has to learn that behavior, which, reco- which again, is like, it, like you have to build up an assembly space where that behavior is a feature of that space. Um, so this is why then assembly theory becomes related to the goal-directed behavior because now you're treating objects as historical objects, and presumably some of the feature of that goal space should already be in the assembly space, So it allows you to look, map out the set of future possibilities based on what that system could be in the future. Then that gets into like, how big is that horizon? So Michael Levin has this uh, concept of a cognitive horizon Um, And I had like a sort of similar concept about this causal horizon in assembly spaces, like what are the future set of things you can construct based on the space you have now? And for more complex objects, because they're deeper in time and they have a larger assembly space, they have a larger future horizon of things that can be assembled from them in the past, which um, you know, that feature is not in the assembly index that we were talking about E. coli versus Taxol before, Marty, but, um, but that feature might be embedded in something about E. coli's interaction with other objects. So so there's just this is why I say there's like a huge richness here because there's all these things we could do and there's a lot of people feverishly working on some of these things, but it's a lot of new ways of trying to conceptualize some of these concepts uh, so we're Behind where I'd like to be, but it's exciting.
1: Okay, well, it was really it was really great to hear uh, that goal-directed behavior and/or agency are similar to natural selection. You guys immediately <laughs> came to an agreement on that. Done. Very, very simple. I didn't expect it. Let, let me just let me just ask one. Maybe I'll throw a wrench into this. Potentially, this could be a wrench, and I'll and I'll be a little bit as a physiologist, going to throw the wrench in. Is is homeostasis a a kind of at least a facet of this too? Because you know, Clark Bernard. Famously said that 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 is that is life. That's the main thing for for life. So w- would that count too? I mean, if if goal directness is about maintaining homeostasis, it seems to fit into that mindset.
2: Yeah, like you're. Yeah, I don't. I don't agree that homeostasis is life, but I think it's definitely a derivative property of life. But it's sort of like people focus on self reproduction as like the hallmark feature of life, and I think it's an ancillary feature. And I've, ha- I've had a lot of debates, actually, like during the pandemic, I had these like Friday conversations with Chris Kempe, Michael Lockman and Lee Cronin like every week. And we were always debating this kind of stuff. And, I, um, and one of them was like, like Michael and Lee really think persistence is super important. And I was like, it's not a, it's not persistence, it's existence. Um, because I have this whole philosophy that life is trying to construct objects. But in order to in order to make something again, you have to retain information about making it. So I always think the self-reproduction, the fact that things have to persist in time is actually a feature selected out of the creative process of making new things that if you want to continue to make as many things as possible, you have to retain information of what was made in the past, which means things have to copy themselves. Um, And I think homeostasis is a little like that. I think like in general, the biosphere is a collection of things that have goals, so to speak, or agential behavior, and some of them maintain themselves and some of them build a lot of new things and it's a manifestation, maybe of the same physics, but different sides of it.
1: Yeah. Okay. That that makes sense. So I, I, I started this section by saying we were going to do lightning round. So that was the longest bolt of lightning that's ever uh,
2: That was a ever... very long lightning question in my defense. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly.
1: No, no, no. It's not on you. I, I, I thought that that might go a lot longer, but let. I know you've only got a couple minutes left. So let's truly try to do a lightning. And I want to do the first one off of what you just said. Again, this might not be lightning and this could be the last one and that's fine. Um, will will life anywhere in the universe not have reproduction? Will we find life that will be, there'll be sort of some thing that lasts forever or will there always be death and life at death and birth
2: um i think there'll always be death and birth but there will also always be propagation of information
1: yeah well the second part i'm fine with but how do you get to the first part why must there be birth and death in in life in general
2: oh um because you you life is sort of Uh, It's propagating information but also trying to build more information to propagate so unless you're actually recycling structures you're not building new things that actually can help sustain the things that exist in the past and also things in the future. So I, I know it's really sad. Actually, when, uh, one time I realized that like selection is just literally a fight for existence. I mean, like this is really really, exi- but it, it, but it is like, you don't, you don't think like, you just think things are die and things, you know, like live, but actually it's like things, a certain amount of stuff can exist yeah. and all the rest of it, which is an exponentially larger space can't.
1: Can't, can't. Yeah, that's fine. But why, but why does it have to be birth and death? I mean, if you use those things in really broad ways, it's fine. But go back, going back to your Hogwarts castle, what if we just embellish? that castle, and yet the castle still is the castle. I mean, that's not reproduction in the biological sense, but it is doing the novel things. It is innovating. Yeah, but
2: how would you, I guess, how would you even get to the castle to begin with? So, actually, no, but I think there's some nuance to your question, um, which is, I think some information on this planet is very old and has been here for 3.8 billion years, right? But physical structures in biology have not persisted that long. And my favorite example is just the ribosome, right? Like they're rebuilt, you know, on, you know, hours. Super or, rapidly. I don't yeah. know what the half-life mm-hmm. of a ribosome is. But they're rebuilt all the time, but the information persists in the biosphere. And, you know, like the inner interior structure of the ribosome hasn't changed in billions of years. Um, it's just made over and over again. So I think it depends on what what are you talking about as dying, and what are you talking about as persisting. So I think individual physical structures will always die, and some of the information that's a part of them will always persist, if it's life. So you'll have some information on a planet that's billions of years old, and some of it that's just generated, but that's also one of the reasons that biospheres have a tendency to complexify over time. Um, And the death process is necessary for that generation of complexity is my perspective. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cam, do you have another one in this
0: lightning round and then we can wrap? Well, I I have one question that I'm, I'm sort of, you know, like probably the the question that I I wanted to ask you more than any other question.
2: I I don't know if I'm excited or scared, but I'm, I think I'm more excited.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's more out of just my personal curiosity, I guess, but, So again, you know, coming from this evolutionary perspective, I've really been thinking a lot recently about the levels of selection and the conflict between uh, sort of selfishness and conflict at the individual level and cooperation. And in, in evolutionary biology, this is sort of like a, you know, it started off like, why is there cooperation? It doesn't make sense in a Darwinian world, thinking about like social organisms. But You know, now we recognize that sort of the same sort of theory, uh, applies for understanding how genes cooperate, um, at the level of the genome, for example, uh, to repress, you know, to suppress the effects of like selfish genetic elements. And so you have to work well together so what what selection is is constantly playing with is this tension and conflict between the the sort of the fitness of the individual versus the fitness of the group and the collective. And so, as we talk about this progression of you know complexity and assembly theory, you know I, I'm thinking, as an evolutionary biologist, well, i can I can understand how mechanisms have evolved so that there's cooperation at the level of the genome at the cooperation at the level of the cell for organelles to work together and for cells to work with other cells to make like tissues and for tissues to work with other tissues at the whole organism level and for individuals to be cooperative with other individuals in a population and it's it's all the same back and forth all the way you know and then you know the the product of that is like you know, human civilization that makes all these great things that you're you're sort of talking about as sort of the products of life. And I and I'm trying I've I've been trying to kind of put that and insert that into the assembly theory that you've been talking about. But I'm I'm not sure if that's you know for using the word emergent property <laughs> or if that's another what what you would might term agency.
2: It's like air quotes on the whole conversation. Yes.
0: <laughs> 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 or is that just agency where where how how? Where does this, uh, because, you know, the struggle for life, as you pointed out, is is sort of that selfishness. So individuals that are good at replicating and making more copies of themselves and propagating information will have greater success than those that do a, a not so good job of doing that. And so, does does that question make sense? It's a little bit. No,
2: it totally makes sense, and I have thought about it quite a lot. And I have a, a postdoc that's actually trying to work on some concepts in evolutionary theory related to this, but in an assembly theoretic standpoint. So I have been thinking about this quite a bit. But um, but I think if I, I'll answer in kind of a non assembly theory way, but it it is an assembly theory way, but like individuals are temporary things. And I think this is like, we're always like thinking the individual is the unit of selection, which is why this raises all of the paradoxes. But individuals are aggregates of different propagating information packets, if you want to think about it that way. So if you think about the information, each little bit of information is competing for existence. Sometimes they're together in this object, and sometimes you know that same part of information is over here with another object, but that information is still trying to propagate. So you know, a good strategy is to have the same piece of information in a lot of objects. Um, and maybe that gives you something like kin selection or something and then you know that minimizes conflict or you can just try to like have one object that has a very high abundance is like a very selfish thing because and then that information gets very abundant But I think I think actually if you look at it the information level like like the bits that are actually propagating through things We call objects. They're just competing to be selected (laughs) Uh, But sometimes it looks like cooperation because they're distributed across many objects that are very similar. Yeah, so it's basically multi-level selection all the way down.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's cool to see evolutionary biologists, a lot of them starting to come around to that way of thinking, because I think that that's going to help move us in the direction of unification. Well, Sarah, I know you're you're out of time, and we really appreciate you know the conversation. I think it was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Um, I do want to give you the chance. Is there anything we didn't ask you that you wanna you wanna make sure to say?
2: Oh, that's hard. I don't think so. It was just really fun. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like. I'm so curious more on your perspectives, but I guess there's only so much time in a day. So
1: (laughs) yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we probably need to let Cam get some sleep too. I mean, you've really, you really powered through the late hours, man. We appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or just leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you don't, we'd love to know that too. All feedback is good feedback.
0: Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, and Ruth Demery, and Brad Van Periden for producing the episode.
1: Thanks also to interns Dana De La Cruz, Daniela Garcia Almeida, Kaylee McCain, and Kyle Smith for helping produce the episode. Keating Shimeri produces the fantastic cover art.
0: Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support.
1: Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear and Taryn Costello.